Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is part two of my conversation with J.P. Pomari about his new novel, The Last Guests. Now, if you've missed part one of the conversation, maybe head back, check it out. There is so much about building up the plot that Josh and I discuss, and it'll really give you the context for today's conversation. Now, the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling to help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. And 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connections to their lands. Now, Josh Pomari is the author of some incredible thrillers, including Call Me Evie, Tell Me Lies, and In the Clearing. Josh and I have spoken on the show before. This is part two of our conversation, but it's worthwhile reminding you that he is a crime and thriller writer who has won the Naya Marsh Award He's shortlisted on the 2021 Ned Kelly Award, and The Last Guests is no slouch in the broader catalogue of his incredible work. Now, as the novel begins, we're introduced to a nondescript man entering holiday accommodation. He sets it up. Another peephole stream has gone live. We are very concerned with online surveillance in this book. On the other side of Auckland, Kane and Lena are doing it tough financially. Kane hasn't had much work since he was injured in combat, and he wants Lena to put the family home up on We Stay. Lena's not sure, though, because all her childhood memories are in that home, and we're starting to get a sense of what sort of terror a guest might inflict on that nostalgia. Now, in part two, we're going to be extending on Josh's incredible work, Plotting Thrillers. We're going to discover how he works with psychology and the sort of psychology he likes to explore. We're also going to get a little bit into the J.P. Pomari connected universe. Yes, if you are a fan, you might have noticed some familiar moments popping up from book to book. There's even a little bit of a candid chat after the microphone gets put down at the end. So join me as we discover part two of my conversation with J.P. Pomari about The Last Guests. Can I just come to reader expectation? Because, I mean, if we, if we think about crime and mystery, there are usually at times quite tongue-in-cheek, but there are literally rules that have been written around, say, certain styles of mystery does does knowing that a lot of readers will have some experience of these rules and some i mean we talked off air about my sense of even just the disappearing pages between my fingers gave me a sense that i could figure something out about the book does does knowing that there are going to be expectations that you can muck around with does that ever play into your structuring your plotting yeah you know it's funny because um it's funny because I I, uh, I know which readers are going to hate which of my books, you know, uh, and I know which readers are going to love them. Um, and, and as much as I don't write to an audience, I'm definitely conscious of which rules I'm breaking and which expectations I'm breaking for some readers. I think this book, more than my others, probably demands a greater level of suspension of disbelief, but also I think it offers greater payoffs. And so... Um, those that came for the probably slightly 
more realism or more literary elements of Call Me Evie may hate this um, book. And so in a sense, I break my own rules and I do something that authors probably shouldn't do. And that's let down their biggest fans or whatever, you know, let down the people that, that love their early work. Um, so I think for me, I'm, I'm, I'm first and foremost writing to entertain myself. But secondly, when we look at rules, um, when it comes to crime fiction and psychological thrills, I'm still finding my feet. And I think, um, I think you don't, the main thing you don't want to do is let is one, this is a marketing thing, but two, it's also something that no writer really thinks about when they're writing. I don't think, but the last thing you want to do is set the reader's expectations for something you're not going to deliver on. So if you say it's a psychological thriller and it's very slow, or if you say it's a, cozy crime and there's lots of gore or something like that you you are you are letting down those readers um, and you can't you can't satisfy all readers you know there's people will hate certain books that others love you know it's, it's that age-old thing every reading experience is different for every reader and every reading experience is different for the same reader at different points in their lives as well if you go back and read something from years ago you might not like it as much um, so to try to please everyone and to try to fit into rules is, is, is a pretty pointless exercise. But I think, as I said, it's important to deliver to some extent what the reader's expecting when they open the book. So if they're expecting a big twist, you better deliver that. If they're expecting a slow burn, you better deliver that. If they're expecting a page turner that requires a, a greater level of suspension of disbelief, then you, you better deliver that. Um, and it's still important to surprise readers, but I think when it, when we talk about these rules, it's more about the expectations of, of the readers. And as I said, that's that's also a marketing thing. Mm. And what about the the social ephemera that can make sometimes seem to just make up the background of a story? Uh, you've talked a little bit about you know sort of the way apps play a role in our life and the way you've kind of covered certain in your in your own like we stay is is your app but look I'm basically I'm asking you teased the story about music and the role music played in this book I'm I'm just keen to hear that story now <laughs> yeah sure um so you know with this oh, with all my books and I've probably spoken to you about this before um but I I what I do is I actually um I method write to some extent and this isn't deliberate yeah and there are deliberate method writers in the same way, you know, method actors, I think mm-hmm. just as an explanation, it's a riff on that. It's um, inhabiting your characters to the ex- extent that they affect your life outside of writing, you know? Um, and, uh, and certainly with Evie, that was the case. You know, I, I shaved my head and I shaved my legs cause she's a young woman. And I, um, I, I sort of engaged the sort of apps that kids were using at the time. Ask FM was one of them. There was no TikTok back then, but yeah, I was, I was sort of looking at Snapchat and stuff like that and, you know, living as close to Evie's life as I possibly could or Kate's life. Um, and, you know, same goes with all my work I've found. I become those characters as much as they are informed by me as well, that they're a part of me. And so with this, I was, I got as fit as I've ever been, you know, on Christmas day, I ran 20 something Ks and just didn't even think about it. And I was running, you know, 50, 60, 70 Ks a week. And I was just insanely fit. And, um, and I also started working out a bit more because Kane's, you know, got his gym. And so I, I got in like, you know, probably the best shape of my life for a period there. Um, 
and but I was also Kane Gamble, so I was like, oh, I started doing it to research, and I sort of became like Kane. I didn't get, I didn't reach a level of addiction, but I sort of, you know, I could, I could see how you could slide down that slope really quickly and easily. Um, but something else, I, I listened to the music that they listen to, and I've always done that. And so there's always a playlist for whatever I'm working on. Is it live? Can can people find it? Yeah, 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 they can. Yeah, it's weird. You know, you may not want to listen to all the all the <laughs> tracks, but yeah, you can share it if you like. Um, and it's um, it's on Spotify and Apple Music. Hash it made it for Spotify for another read along thing. Um, but basically, I, I I was listening to the same songs over and over and over again. And one of them, which I think gave the book energy, uh, is um, Paint It Black by the Rolling Stones. Mm. Um, and, you know, I don't I don't want to dwell on this particular song because another one was um, When You Were Young by The Killers. Mm. And so these, these really informed two characters in the sense that I was – a natural narrative emerges from both of these songs um, and it may not be – what the artists intended necessarily, but for me, it was there was a really clear backstory came out of when you were young, um, and and you know, uh, one of the psychological profiles of the other character came out of Paint It Black, um, and that that song, you know, Paint It Black. Some days I would listen to it on repeat all day, and at one stage in one of the edits, the song existed in the book in the sense that every lyric you know in the order that they're in the song exists in the book but of course through the editing process when you have copy editors and um and so and there's so many different hands on it you forget about that because i do that to entertain myself while i'm writing um but there are there are things in there from this playlist that i was listening to from loads of different songs um that are just that that's just me entertaining myself as i write um and there's, a, there's other Easter eggs in there as well from other novels and stuff like that. And these are things I doubt any readers will pick up on, although a couple of readers have picked up on this one. But it's a, in all my books, there's been references to the other books and there's this kind of um, tapestry that I'm weaving only for me. There's things no one will ever find, you know. It's only for me. Um, and it's a lot of fun. There's something in... The last guest that's in the next novel, which I'm working on at the moment, which um, you know may not come out for a while, but there's there's a scene. One of the peepholes is from, <laughs> you know, one of these side chapters is from the next novel, um, and that's just me already in that world, in the world of my next novel, thinking about it, and that just came came out. So it's a really fun way to write, I think, and a, a way to entertain yourself when you're writing. All right, you've gone there. My my last question for you, the way I was going to wrap up this interview was to ask about there is a news broadcast at the at the sort of the the, the fading stages of the last guests and I picked up it's a it's a psychologist who was arrested at a a tram, tram station, a train station in Melbourne. I'm like, okay, I know where this comes from. I thought maybe we were building towards a, a JP Pamari extended universe. I thought like maybe, maybe we were going to get some of your, um, some of your characters teaming up in, I don't know, like a, a, a psychological sort of super group kind of like way. Marvel, Marvel spinoff. For, no, you know, that's that, that, that one's the most obvious one I've done and everyone's picked up on it. So I need to definitely make it more subtle again. <laughs> um, and that was something the editors w- wanted to take out. And I almost were like, yeah, let's get rid of it. Because um, 
they didn't get the reference and they've read my books. So mm. I thought, oh, well, if they didn't get it, it's subtle enough that, that no one will get it, which is fine by me. And But, but that's the one that lots of people have picked up on. Mm. Um, there's another reference to a, in there, which I thought was pretty obvious to, um, I think this made the cut. I'm pretty sure it did. Uh, it was in the proof anyway. It's um, Bill, Bill Bennett, who was in Call Me Evie, um, just one small reference to him and and another reference to ISO who was in Call Me Evie because this is set in New Zealand there's much more Evie mm. references um, but yeah it's funny that 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 one was quite fun I think that's the one that because Tell Me Lies has only been out for a year and a half or whatever uh, you know from its original format on Audible um, that one's probably fresh on people's memories but there's a few ones in there that people could pick up on if they were you know looking out for them um, but yeah, I also love David Mitchell, who does it ten times better than I do, and he builds these Uber novels, or you know, he, he's got this great universe going now. And and when you're reading, so much of the fun is looking out for these things. I mean, I feel like it's not impossible that some of your protagonists could intersect in some strange, manipulative way. But let's, you know, we can we'll, <laughs> we'll put that in a box. We'll pop it on the shelf. If it if it happens, we'd all like to be surprised by it. Um, I want to I want to come back to one of the big sort of overarching themes that I saw emerging through the last guests, and that was ideas or the juxtaposition, I guess, of physical scars that we carry through us in our life and psychological scars or the the results of psychological trauma, and and especially the ways that one one the physical scars are so often dealt with more than the other. We haven't talked a lot about Kane um, and perhaps this is a, this is good we can focus on Kane because right from the the get-go we see that emerging he has these very very overt physical scars he, he walks with a limp he's you know he's can barely bend one knee because of um, something that happened to him during his military service he's also plagued by dreams that he doesn't share with Lena I wondered you've obviously done a lot of research into um, how ex-service people go through their, their stage coming out of service into, into life. What did you learn um, about the way people receive support and the ways we just deal with different trauma in our lives? Yeah. Um, I, didn't, I don't know if I learned a great deal because it's something I've, I've been interested in for, for a while. Um, I think even, you know... I think I sort of touch upon it a bit in Tell Me Lies, um, this sort of trauma you would experience just viewing um, really abhorrent um, images, yeah. you know, very violent or, or confronting images, how that changes you and you don't change back. That's that's something I did want to write about in this. Mm. Um, you, you, you can't regain your innocence once it's lost and... Um, and there's nothing to gain by losing your innocence and in, in, with some things, you know, I, I think when you do become a killer, for instance, that doesn't, that never goes away. You, and, and if you have a conscience, you will, you know, you, if you're not a sociopath, you will, you will wear that every single day. Um, so I spoke with SAS, former SAS members, um, one of which, one of whom had, had served in, uh, Afghanistan um, and uh, he spoke about how little sport he got but also 
you know, he, he jokingly said the only docs I got to see were Dr. Jim Beam and Professor Steinlager, which is which is a New Zealand bear. Um, and something else that came out of this research into the SAS and trauma was um, this idea that you train if you, you can train someone to be a killer, but you can't untrain them. So there's you can't if you train someone to um, lose all empathy for a perceived enemy that you can't un, untrain that if someone is if you train someone to be prepared to kill someone you can't untrain that and and it's sort of <clears throat> to some extent you see this with abattoir workers you know you are you you're calling upon someone to, to essentially suppress a natural impulse to sustain life um, as much as it's natural to kill animals it's natural to do that when you're hungry. To do that a thousand times in a day, you know, that's completely unnatural. And so these um, people will divorce themselves from the act of killing um, entirely. They will kind of block off that part of their... Um, and, 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 you know, it's no surprise that kids that are, and, and people that are prepared to hurt and torture and maim animals, um, that's often a, a sign that there's some sort of psychological issues and often a sign that they're prepared to hurt humans as well. Um, so I don't want to go down a rabbit hole here, but what I, what I, if I learned anything, it was, it was about um, the permanence of trauma um, and how psychologists work very, very, very hard to contextualize trauma and to help people develop coping mechanisms for trauma you can never really cut it out. And it's the same, I think, the metaphor in the book, which is a really obvious one, um, is shrapnel, you know, the shrapnel being the trauma. But even when you, your body is constantly trying to push it out, but some, you'll always be left with scar tissue and scar tissue can build around and encase shrapnel so it remains in the body um, and you never get it all out. So... Um, yeah, I think that's it's it's so depressing. It's such a depressing thing um, when you think about people who are just have been horrible to children, for instance, or um, women who've been in, re, in, in enormously violent domestic situations. That that trauma doesn't really ever go away. Mm. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's a it's it's probably a depressing note. <laughs> To, to, to really end on but um yeah I, th I think that's probably what i learned mm. and it's it's yeah as sad as it is it's it's a, just a reality do you make a distinction between i guess the active and the passive there's a really interesting vignette um of lena's life as an ambulance worker where <clears throat> due to due to a circumstance that's not in her control someone dies and the way that the way that plays out with her and her partner, um, he—I mean, he—he he was actually sort of an endlessly fascinating character to me. Who, I guess we we won't go too much into his role, but um, it, it struck me that there was a juxtaposition there between what might actively be done and what might passively be done to the same end. So, so put that to me again. Sorry. So that. Oh, do you, I mean, just um, well, I mean, we. We might cut this because I don't want to spoil even small little parts of the parts of the novel. But in that moment with her partner, she she recognizes she's not taking lead, but she recognizes too late 
what is actually happening. Now, he, due to his neglect and due to his substance use, has missed it. The person dies and he he automatically just kind of goes into management mode. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, and, no, I get what you mean, yeah. And that kind of – that then sort of leads into the way he, he sets her – sets Lena up – and it's, it struck me that, I mean, he, in I think a lot of people's, you know, version of that events, he hasn't killed someone in the same way that we've been discussing it, but it almost struck me yeah. that there's the same yeah, sort of no. psychological result. No, no, that's a good question. Um, I can answer that. No, that's, that's, that's fine. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, I think this, it's the um, trolley, trolley problem, mm. you know, um, to, to some extent it's, 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 this thing where, and, and for those who don't know what that is, it's worth looking into. And it's pretty, I think it's pretty important considering what's happening in the pandemic um, where you make, you, we are making a decision on which lives are lost basically um, and what, what, at what costs and so on and so forth. Um, but the trolley problem essentially means, uh, you know, you see a, let's say a tram going along the tracks and there's three people tied to the tracks but you can pull a trigger and it turns and then to a track where there's only one person tied to the track. And so you pulling that trigger, are you killing that person or saving the three people? You know, so as soon as a decision is made, that's active and there's so much more guilt attached to, to that. Um, so, and, and, and this is everywhere, right? Um, no one's the, the further you can remove yourself from the act of killing, the less it will bear on your conscience. And so if you say, less the pandemic, you know, like if you if you were to let off a you you yourself walked around with a gun and killed a hundred people, or that, yeah, sure, that's very active. You're it's it's violent, you are seeing it with your own eyes, you're very engaged in it. If you go out without a mask and you know you're infectious and you kill 100 people, that seems more passive, right? And so you can live with that. You can deal with that. Um, and so I think when we look at the act of killing, but also other things, you know, there's there's all sorts of examples of this in the world where um, bystander apathy is just as harmful and dangerous as actively hurting someone, Um and so I think when we, even when you look at things like anti-racism versus being not racist, you know, there, there, there are two distinctions there. Um, or there's a distinction between those two. And I think the same goes for, for, as I said, violence and trauma. When you are actively causing this and you are there and you can see it and, and the effects and consequences are instantly apparent, um, that's going to cause a different kind of psychological, uh, you know, reaction to um if you can remove yourself from that even though you know you're causing it um we we grant ourselves some sort of moral permissibility to hurt people from arm's length as opposed to doing the hurting ourselves and so it's, it's also you know this raises a whole bunch of questions about um you know philosophical questions about culpability as well of course um you know when you look at the ease at which you can hurt someone now, particularly with the internet, you know, people say stuff to each other online that you wouldn't in a million years dream to say to their face, because then you would have to deal with the consequences in terms of even viewing the human face 
crying. That's a painful thing for most people to experience. And so it's it's much easier to do this online. And as th- these things kind of continue on, drone strikes, for instance, you know, people click of a finger without being there and seeing and experiencing what they're doing. And without that sort of quote unquote active participation um, in that act, they can, it's so much easier to avoid that kind of psychological trauma. I, yeah, I love that you've you've made that parallel with what's happening in the pandemic because it strikes me that in in the parallel of those two parts of the story where we deal with an active death versus a passive death, one may one may force the individual and change the individual, but the other one, I guess, if we cultivate if we cultivate that sense that there is a way to justify that. So, in the case of the story, that person reasonably might not have noticed it and it was the matter of one minute or two minutes in their action that caused the death. If we cultivate a culture where we can rationalise that the, the, to the nth degree, that has some really interesting, um, really interesting psychological effects on our day-to-day. It, might, it strikes me that it might even be more useful for us to take the same sort of active responsibility that we we've been discussing for some of your other characters and we are going down such a psychological <laughs> psychological yeah. rabbit hole here no, but, but it's, it's a, but it's interesting yeah. and and only when you say that do i do i realize there's a parallel with what we're talking about earlier where um we are so our brains are, are so much more hopeless than we actually we think we're so much smarter than we are and that's one of the problems we oh. think we can combat tech addiction by you know out thinking we don't think we're addicted we we in our in our own precious little ways we have these defense mechanisms to prevent us from it's you know it's cycle it's um cognitive dissonance you know we, we just find ways to live with the harm we're doing tech, we tech, find ways to deal with it um tech addiction there's an app for that i heard <laughs> yeah. i might use that in my other interviews that's good go for like, it <laughs> absolutely go for it you were worried we weren't going to be able to finish on a high note <laughs> there we go we got a joke in the end in all that darkness there is light and another mm. platitude but there we go <laughs> if if nothing else i hope the the listeners have have realized that there is something on every single page of the last guests i'm speaking with jp pamari his latest novel is The Last Guests. It is it is stunning. It it absolutely floored me. And I'm probably gonna have to go back and reread it now that we've had this conversation, Josh. Thank you so much for taking the time. And look, all the best for what's gonna happen with Tell Me Lies and the Ned Kelly. And you know, I, I I've just got this strong feeling that we're gonna be talking about the last guests for a little while too. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. And, and fingers and toes crossed. That it's such a strong shortlist. I can't even begin to imagine winning but um but yeah really honored and surprised to be on the shortlist so and thanks again for having me on the show absolute pleasure i um i always kind of vibe on shortlists as just being like look if you ever wanted to start a book club just pick pick that shortlist and there you've got your first six meetings like yeah winners winners never seem to me quite as important probably because i'm not on the shortlist but as the, as the shortlist i'm just like well I, if i'm gonna read one i'm probably gonna want to read a couple um but yeah look you've have a great day, mate. Um, Excellent. Terrific. Well, thanks so much, Andrew. It was fun. Pleasure. All right. <laughs> talk talk to you next time the book comes out. Yeah, next year probably. <laughs> <laughs> See ya. See you, mate. Bye. Bye. 
That's it for part two of my conversation with J.P. Pamari. The J.P. Pamari's latest novel is The Last Guest. It's out now from Hachette. If you want to catch part one of the conversation, if you want to catch any of the incredible conversations that we have here on the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast, check out in your podcast app. Go back through. There's, uh, there is a conversation with J.P. Pamari previously and so many other great thriller writers if you love a bit of a good bit of Aussie crime. Now, Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Please stay in touch. I would love to hear what you're reading. I'd love to hear what you think about some of the incredible books being published. You'll find Final Draft on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at Final Draft 2SER. And look, can I ask... If you want to discover more of us, you can subscribe. I will make sure there is a new a new book interview every week, some bonuses every week. And if you are loving the show, I know it's a little bit cheesy, but if you could give us a rating, if you could drop a few lines in the comments, what it does is it allows other people to see us. It tells the algorithm that this is a podcast that you value and it lets other book lovers discover it too. It would be, it would mean so much because we've been kicking along now for three years and I really, really love connecting with other book lovers. So that is one way that you can help get the message out that you love Aussie writing. I am Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, as always, see you later. Happy reading.